Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. So we're uh, moving along in the Gospel of Matthew. He has called the first disciples to himself and begun the ministry of healing and uh, proclamation. And so now we come to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, and it's really interesting. Um, I'm telling you, the the world of biblical criticism and scholarship is like the Wild West sometimes. I've seen some of the most bizarre things. Um, and this, this is certainly one of them. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So, right. So seeing the crowds, so people were following him because of, and we saw that in the last one from the whole region are following him. And he went up on the mountain. So I thought, well, let's see what, what mountain people say that is. So there's a place called Mount of the Beatitudes. It's about um, 25 feet below sea level, actually. It's about 200 feet taller than the Sea of Galilee, and so it would make, you know, sort of a, a, an easy place to teach the people. They could gather below, and he could stand above and teach. Okay. So far, so good. So <laughs> I go to a Wikipedia page just to make it easy because it's not that big a deal. Um, so I go there, and, and then, so it tells where it is, what's there now, blah, 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 that it's been 1,600 years, been kind of venerated as the place for the Sermon on the Mount. Come down a little below that. I mean, it's not a very big Wikipedia article. It would take you like three or four minutes to read the whole thing. And, and so it comes down, and it says, <clears throat> yeah, what's, what's even more interesting than asking which mountain it's on is the fact that scholars now agree that this sermon never actually occurred that Matthew just took a bunch of uh, random teaching that Jesus had done, cobbled it together, and puts it here as though he were writing, uh, as though Jesus gave a sermon on the mount. It's bizarre. I I don't understand this stuff. I've seen this before in looking at different things. Um, It it will say, you know, especially with Matthew's gospel, and I'm not sure why that is, but it'll say things like, I remember looking at a commentary one time, on something, and it said that Jesus said, da, 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 da. the commentary literally began with, Jesus never said this. And I'd love to know just how anybody could possibly know that. It is so bizarre. But but if you just go into the world of biblical, quote, scholarship, what you'll find is, I have no earthly idea why anybody wants to study the Bible who actually um, does professionally, because most of them don't believe it. That Their whole point in studying the Bible is is to debunk it. It's just, I, I, are there other documents out there like that? I mean, does anybody make a career out of debunking the Iliad and the Odyssey, for instance, or Plato or Aristotle or any of these other people? Do, it, it, is that a thing? Because I'm not aware of it if it is, but I don't know why you would want to set your life's work to be to come up with conclusions like Jesus never preached the Sermon on the Mount. Why would you do that? I don't get it, but at any rate... <laughs> at any rate so the disciples came to him he sat down and the disciples came to him so apparently they're with him while the people are <clears throat> are down below so and and it shouldn't be unusual to see when he sat down to teach because that's exactly the way it worked you sat to teach so <clears throat> now we get to the beatitudes and he opened his mouth and taught them saying so Matthew is very clear that Jesus gave a sermon on a mountain. 
right? I mean, the, the, I don't know if he could have been any clearer, and I don't know why they they so distrust Matthew that they said he never did this. But at any rate, sorry, I'm getting on a little roll on that. Anyway, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These All these things are countercultural, all the things that Jesus is going to say. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. These are these are characteristics that that would be true of people who see the world for what it is. I believe. I don't believe it's just poverty that's being talked about in poor in spirit. I don't believe that mourning means that you've recently lost somebody, and I don't believe that meek means humble in the same way we see it. But all these are countercultural. Nobody would say, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. That's not normally the people who who are blessed in this world. And and like I said, I believe that it has far more to do with the way that we understand the world around us and the state of the world around us than anything else. I believe that that what it's saying is, blessed are those who see, uh, see through the edifice and the artifice of the world. Blessed are those who don't put all their trust in these things. Blessed are those who see the suffering in the world. Blessed are those who hurt. Blessed, I mean, that, and I'm not saying Jesus chose wrong words. I'm saying we do a bad job interpreting it. <clears throat> because I, I believe that what Jesus really is saying is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? It means that they have seen the world for what it is. As wonderful as it is as God's creation, They've seen through that and realize that there's this gaping hole in my life and it can only be filled by God. They're the ones who see the the sinfulness of the world, the brokenness of the world, and the pain in the world. They're the ones who see through all of that. Whether you can be that person while also participating and being blessed in terms of having having things, having much. I mean, it, it it does. What it means is 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 that you're not just identifying with with good things. That you're actually your eyes are open to the world around you, and and it sees it exactly for what it is. That it's a thing that's passing away. When when we read, for instance, in the book of the Revelation, when we see God's judgment on the earth. The, what, what we're seeing is the world as God sees it. As wonderful as we think it is, he sees its fallen nature and sees what it could have been and should have been and what it will be, and then spoils this creation. And, and part of the reason for that, in my mind, is, is that so eyes can be opened and, and stop hanging on to this thing that's passing away, that we can see it as it truly is, a world in need of salvation, a world in need of Jesus Christ. If we could identify in that way, rather than you know just, just participating in success and, and worldly blessing, then we would have a different attitude, I think. We would have the attitude of being poor in spirit. That It's an attitude that, that has to almost be cultivated. Because the world doesn't want you to be that way. You know, if, if you are in that place of, of being poor in spirit, being impoverished in spirit, that, that you don't have 
hopes and dreams that can be satisfied by anything on this side of the sun, then then you're typically not somebody people want to hang out with, right? <laughs> you're somebody who, who people want to shunt to the side. Now, that's not the same as the sort of complete focus on the climate and all the other things that are going on because that that's just mother earth worship at some level there we should be deeply concerned about our planet we should be deeply concerned about the the nature of our stewardship of this place but the the extreme measures that that people want to talk about when the science can't possibly support that as true. I mean, I would think if we've learned anything the last couple of years, what we've learned is is that the science is not something that really exists. Science does, but the science is something we should always question. So it being poor in spirit encompasses things like seeing the degradation of the world so that our needs can be, you know, always met no matter what they are. There, there's always something more to want. And, and that more to want then ends up further raping the earth, you know. And, and so it comes down to the, the idea, I believe, in my mind, comes down to something more like I, I want to live in the way that I do the least harm possible, it, it, which sort of takes um, what's it, uh, Luther's statement about sin boldly but love God more. That's sort of the classic Lutheran thing. Um, and what it means is is that it's the recognition that in everything you do because you're human, there's going to be something sinful about it, every action. There's going to be something selfish. There's going to be something self-aggrandizing or whatever in every action that you take. And so Luther's prescription against that is you have to act. And so sin boldly but love God more is is that whole idea that everything I do— is tinged at some level with sin, but but if I love God more, then then that covers some of that, and and it keeps me from from sinning boldly and wrongly. Um, and so we we need to always take measured responses to everything. We need we need to be careful with the way we live. We need to do the least amount of harm possible to the planet and our fellow man as we can, knowing that just living in this existence makes it impossible that I could do zero harm. And that's the poverty of spirit. It's the recognition that no matter what I do, no matter how I live, it's going to have a sinful character to it at some level. It might be minuscule, but but it's not nothing. And and so, and then, then we should we should feel that poverty of spirit over men and women, boys and girls who don't know Jesus. We should have that burning in our hearts that says, "I wish that everybody knew Jesus. I wish that everybody knew knew him and committed themselves to the ethic that he teaches." But the reality is, you can commit yourself to the ethics of Jesus, but without the Holy Spirit, you can't do it, and it's a tentative commitment. You know, he didn't make a tentative commitment to us. He made a, a commitment of the cross, a commitment of himself, a commitment unto death. And that's the commitment that's required to live as a Christian, a complete commitment of who we are. And so the, my poverty of spirit begins with the recognition that that's who I'm supposed to be, and I'm not. There's still 
parts of me that are that are not anywhere near seeking first the kingdom of God. And so that poverty of spirit begins with the recognition that I'm not who I ought to be. And then it spills over into the recognition that, that because I'm not as I ought to be, neither is anybody else, and therefore neither is the world. And so we still continue to live with the effects of sin in the world. And we see it in a, in a million different ways. We see it in the suffering of our fellow men. We see it in, in the homelessness, in the drug addiction, in the suicides, and all the things that we've seen over the last several years that have spiked so dramatically as we become a, quote, post-Christian world. And I think this more, that mourning and poverty of spirit go along hand-in-hand hand with one another. I think those things are, are not one and the same, um, but so in, in the poor in spirit, it'll be the kingdom of heaven, and it's because you recognize that this world can never satisfy your spirit. Your spirit is impoverished be, because of this world, because of the sin of the world, because of the pain and the suffering in the world, and, and you recognize that it can only be satisfied by something that's not of this world, and therefore, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, is that talking about that Jesus is going to come alongside, put his arm around you, and everything's going to be fine? No, that, that's not. this is not a, a, a season of mourning. No, it, it's mourning over the state of things, mourning over the destruction of God's good creation. And when I say his good creation, I'm not just speaking of, of the earth. I'm speaking of human beings as well. That, that we are created in the image of God, and yet we don't act like it. And we frequently don't treat others like it either. And so, so there's a mourning over what could be, but is not, and never will be, until the coming again. And so what, what God's promise is, though, is that we will ultimately be comforted over that and in that mourning. And we, we are comforted in that in, in multiple ways, but that comfort doesn't await the coming again fully. I mean, the, the fullness of the comfort does, but not the comfort itself because of the Holy Spirit. And he is also called what? The comforter. So he comes to abide with us and give us hope. I mean, it, it's sort of, if you can think of blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted, then, then you can see in that, for instance, a couple of days ago when we were looking at the, the, the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 9 that speaks of the coming of the Messiah to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the, those who were previously rejected, that, that from there will come salvation and the light will first come into that region and then from there. And that's part of where we are today with this. But, but that comforting in Isaiah 9, is that, that's written to a community in exile. And they're mourning. And, and the, but the promise is they will be comforted. Now, it's going to be 70 years in that particular instance. And it's going to be then after that, another 400 years after their return, that Jesus comes to provide greater comfort. But, but there's, there's a comfort that comes with the proclamation of the truth. Because there will be a recapitulation. There will be an end to this thing that we mourn, thing that causes us to have poverty of spirit, and, and then we'll know the kingdom of heaven and we'll know comfort fully. But what we participate in receiving comfort now. 
And then because we're comforted, Paul says that we are those who are to comfort with the comfort with which we have been comforted. That's 2 Corinthians. So that's who we're intended to be. We're intended to be those who receive comfort and then those who give comfort to others who are also mourning. And then finally, in this first little part of this, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And when I say that, that, I mean, the picture that I have of meekness in my mind is a guy at a church we went to 30 years ago who every time he would take communion, he would come out into the aisle with his hands folded together. He would kneel and then he would keep put his head down all the way to the altar. Well, the problem was it drew a great deal of attention to himself. Everybody saw this. I think that 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 there's a there's a proper meekness and I'm not saying his was put on I don't think it was um, because I knew the guy so I I don't think it was put on meekness I think he truly felt that and and this meekness is in contrast to actually Greek philosophy at the time which taught that you should make much of yourself Jesus speaks into that in multiple ways and, and shows how it has infected Jewish culture as well because when he speaks, for instance, of saying, when you go to a banquet, don't take the chief seat. No, because somebody will come along who is more important than you, and you'll be asked to move down the line, and, and that'll bring embarrassment on you and some level of shame. He says, no, no, take the lowest seats and to be asked to come forward. And so that he, he's saying this is how it's infected Jewish life, is that y'all are acting like Gentiles, in that, in that attitude, that's what I see, Jesus says. I see you acting like Gentiles. Um, you're trying to, to be the most important people on the earth. Now, what we're told in Exodus 12 is Moses was the meekest man on earth. But that meek man led the nation. That meek man confronted Pharaoh. We're, we're to be meek in ourselves. We, we are to be humble about who we are. We're to recognize who we are. We're to recognize that we are sinners saved by grace, but at the same time, our status has been changed, changed from that to children of the living God. And it was changed by Jesus, which means that, that we don't take any pride in the transition from sinners to children of the living God because we didn't do anything to become that other than believe. And even that, Paul says, is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did all the work to make me a child of God. I couldn't do it for myself. It was impossible in my state of sin. And so the meekness comes in something more like the fear of the Lord. So I am meek before the living God because I recognize my limitations and his limitlessness. I recognize that that I am a being who need not be. He is the only essential being in the universe, and everything was created from him and through him. Nothing that came into being did so without him. And so then I am humble before that living God, not boastful. Now, he can use me to do mighty and great things, and I can believe that I can do great things because I can do all things through him. And that's the important part. That's where the meekness comes in. That I believe that ultimately I recognize him as creator of the universe, sustainer of the universe, savior of the universe. 
and therefore I bow before him in, in holy meekness, but with the same belief that he is my father and that he can use me to do great things, no matter how limited I might be. His limitless power and love flowing through me can accomplish things that, that I could never do without him. And so those first three things are attitudes. I'm poor in spirit because I see the reality of the world. I see the pain in the world. I see what the world could be and should be, but is not and never will be. I mourn because of the pain and the suffering in the world that I live in. I mourn that I'm not all that I ought to be. And then I'm meek and humble before a holy God. And then I share what I'm given in that same spirit of meekness and reverence, lest I speak evil or wrongly of him. And in all those things, blessed are the poor in spirit, there's the kingdom of heaven. You will inherit this thing because you haven't set your sights on, on this kingdom. You'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. Ultimately, they will see a reversal of all the things that cause them to mourn. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth because their Father in heaven will give it to them because of their understanding of who he is and in light of that, who they are. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.